increase my position size. But I never stopped trading. In 30 years of trading, I bet you could count on one hand the times I have been completely flat. How do you manage that and still take vacations? I always time my travel for when the markets are closed. I still follow the markets when I am on vacation. I might trade in the morning and ski in the afternoon. Although this is not necessarily a good thing, I even get up several times every night to check the markets. Do you set your clock or do you wake up naturally? I wake up naturally. Sometimes I see something and realize that I have to respond immediately and I have to get out of bed. Sometimes, however, waking up to look at the markets works with my subconscious. Sometimes my best trades have come from looking at the quotes on my iPhone when I wake up at night and thinking, this doesn't look right, then going back to sleep. Then I wake up the next morning and I realize I shouldn't be in a certain trade. For example, I might think U.S. equities were strong and then the yen was down. The Nikkei should have been higher last night and it didn't go up. Something is wrong. I should be short. What do you think is the biggest mistake people make in the markets? Looking to outside sources for guidance in their positions. The belief that you can watch CNBC and get useful advice is very misguided. You really have to formulate your own opinion and not rely on so-called experts. Do you ever have friends ask you for advice on trading? Yes, once in a while. Well, what advice do you give them? I tell them that it's not about being right. It's about making money. Taking a loss is part of the process. You will have some percentage of losses. You just need to make sure that your losses are smaller than your wins. At one time, I experimented with hiring traders to work for me. I had a trader who, when he got stopped out of some positions in the morning, would say, My whole day is ruined. I would reply, What do you mean your day is ruined? You have all this opportunity sitting in front of you. The market doesn't care if you lost money on a trade. It doesn't matter. Think about your next trade. You have to get past the idea that just because you lost money on a trade, it means you failed. Every trading decision you make is subject to some randomness. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose on any individual trade, as long as you get the process correct. What other advice do you give to friends who are aspiring traders? You need incredible dedication. Trading is not a hobby. Treat trading like a business. Keep a journal of your trades. If you make a mistake in the markets, write it down. About nine months later, I contacted Ramsey with a few follow-up questions. Can you give me an actual example that illustrates your trade selection process? The starting point is always some fundamental premise. Many investors viewed QE2 as money printing, a widespread perception that encouraged a shift of dollars into alternative assets, including other currencies, gold, and equities. I actually didn't share this view. I thought QE2 was nothing more than the Fed swapping a non-interest-bearing asset, cash, for an interest-bearing asset, a note or bond, with the private sector. But my own views were irrelevant. It was the market perception that mattered. My expectation was that once QET ended, the shift of assets out of the dollar would also stop and the dollar would recover. Okay, so I thought the dollar should rally after QE2, but against what? I monitor at least 20 currencies against the dollar. I wanted to sell the first currency that weakened. If you think about it, under this condition of alleged money printing, anything that can't rally against the dollar is really a bearish currency. The weak link turned out to be the Turkish lira, which was breaking out to a two-year low against the hated dollar. If it couldn't rally versus the dollar when the Fed was printing money like crazy, what was it going to take? Although I had a directional bias based on my view of the macro environment, I didn't take the trade until the lira broke out of its two-year trading range. The market had to prove itself before the trade was entered. 
If there had not been a breakout, there would not have been a trade. But what about the tendency for markets to have false breakouts? The key distinction here is that I had a fundamental reason to expect the breakout. The breakout approximately coincided with the end of QE2. Also, I used a protective stop below a recent relative low, a point I thought should not be reached if my trade premise was correct, to limit my losses if I was wrong. Can you give me another example of a trade that illustrates your approach? In 2011, gold managed to rally over $500 an ounce, while platinum was barely able to gain $100 an ounce. Therefore, as a trader, my directional bias is long. I want to buy gold, and if my bias is short, then platinum stands out as the best vehicle for the trade. Novice speculators, however, would tend to do the exact opposite. They would buy platinum as a proxy for gold because it hasn't yet made the move. Whatever the reason, the point is that many traders buy platinum because they are bullish gold. Buying a laggard as a proxy for a leader is a bad idea. And as a trader, I am keen to take the other side of such a trade when I see a potential setup. In mid-August 2011, gold surged to over $1,900, a new all-time high. Platinum only managed to retest the high end of its trading range. Both markets were seriously overbought, sentiment was extreme, and there were price divergences. All of these considerations suggested that the precious metal markets were vulnerable to a steep correction. And sure enough, over the course of three days, gold corrected over $200 and platinum fell hard as well. That was the test. In the aftermath, you find out what the markets are really made of. Gold subsequently recovered quickly and over the next couple of weeks soared $220 to a new all-time high of 1924. Platinum, however, rebounded by only half this amount. Platinum seemed to be a train wreck waiting to happen. I felt that platinum should lead on the downside because it was the weakest link in the precious metals complex. My strategy was to sell platinum on a downside penetration of the reaction low that had formed following the break from the 2011 high and to add on a downside breakout of an extended trading range. The beauty of selling the weak link is that this market has already shown its reluctance to make new highs. Therefore, I think the risk is the lowest, and sometimes the reward is also the highest. These examples are very helpful. Can you give me one more? My challenge is to pick up on the subtle nuances of the various markets and to anticipate changes or accelerations in trends. I've found that by observing how the markets relate to one another, you can often detect when patterns of behavior change. A change in behavior is usually a failure of one or more related markets to confirm an existing move and serves as a warning sign. Since the 2008 financial crisis, market correlations have been extremely high. So high, in fact, that the media now simply refers to trading days as either risk-on or risk-off. In my opinion, the driver is usually the equity market. The typical stimulus response pattern is equities up equals commodities up equals dollar down. The opposite price movements occur on risk-off days. Furthermore, if commodities are up, then commodity currencies are up. These patterns have been unmistakable and consistent. In mid-September 2011, however, this market behavior abruptly changed. Although stocks were closing at month-to-date highs, commodities were weaker, with the commodity index approaching year-to-date lows, and the dollar was stronger for the month. This counter to anticipated price action was huge. Copper, in particular, which is typically a leading indicator for the economy and commodity prices, was leading the way down, trading just above year-to-date lows, and clearly unable to benefit from the equity strength. 
My strategy was simply to sell commodities and commodity currencies if they violated key technical levels. I used reaction lows and new month-to-date or year-to-date lows as the entry levels and to risk recent reaction highs if filled. The beauty of this strategy is that if your trade entry point gets hit, you are selling the weakest markets first. They are showing that they are unable to rally in the current environment. Never sell the strongest markets until they fail. An important lesson Ramsey provides is that even technically oriented traders, as Ramsey himself was in the early years of his career, can benefit greatly by incorporating a fundamental perspective. It is not a matter of performing any complex fundamental analysis to derive price projections, but rather a question of trying to understand the key fundamental drivers that are likely to determine the direction of the market. For example, by understanding that fundamentals were as negative as they could be for bonds at the start of 2000, Ramsey correctly assumed that bonds had very limited scope on the downside and that any weakening in the strong economy or the prevailing speculative fervor could set in motion a major bull market. As another example, Ramsey expected the end of QE2 to lead to a reversal from dollar weakness to dollar strength. Once he has established a firm fundamental opinion, Ramsey utilizes technical analysis to confirm his anticipated scenario. Combining his technical methodology for entering and exiting trades with a strong fundamental directional bias provides Ramsey with a more effective trading approach than would be possible using technical analysis alone. The idea is to identify the big-picture fundamental factors that are likely to drive the market in one direction, and then use technical analysis to trade in that direction. Fundamentals can also be useful as a contrarian indicator. Ramsey will look for situations where there appears to be a predominant market perception that is being contradicted by the market action. Ramsey cites the example of a bond market, where there was a lot of concern about government borrowing crowding out private borrowing, but interest rates failed to rise. In this context, a bearish fundamental factor had bullish price implications because of its failure to impact prices. Ramsey will always buy the strongest market in a sector for long positions and sell the weakest market in a sector for short positions. Many novice traders make the error of doing the exact opposite. They will buy the laggards in a sector on the typically mistaken assumption that those markets haven't yet made their move and therefore provide more potential and less risk. When Ramsey is looking for a reversal in a sector, he will focus on establishing a position in the market that lagged most on the prior price move. For example, when Ramsey anticipated the dollar would reverse to the upside at the end of QE2, he sought to sell currencies, such as the Turkish lira, that had been weak despite the prior dollar weakness. Ramsey pays a lot of attention to price movements in related markets. The failure of a market to respond as expected to a price move in a correlated market can reveal inherent strength or weakness. For example, after years of moving together, in early September 2011, Equity prices rallied, but commodity prices weakened. Ramsey read the failure of commodity prices to respond to equity market strength as a signal of impending weakness. During the second half of September, commodity prices and commodity currencies, e.g. Australian, New Zealand, and Canadian dollars, plunged. Perhaps the hallmark of Ramsey's trading approach is his rigorous control of risk. Ramsey will typically risk a mere 0.1% on each trade from point of entry. Once he is ahead on a trade, he will allow for more risk latitude. This approach all but assures that losses on new trades are likely to be quite moderate. The only time Ramsey is vulnerable to a significant monthly loss 
is when there are large open profits from winning trades. Although the use of a 0.1% stop point from entry is probably too extreme, or perhaps even advisable, for most traders to adopt, the general concept of using a relatively close stop on new trades and allowing a wider stop after a profit margin has been created is an effective risk management approach that could work well for many traders. Success in trading requires dedication. Ramsey continues to trade and monitor his positions even when he is on vacation. He also awakens himself multiple times each night to check on his positions. This type of all-encompassing commitment to trading is not necessarily recommended as a lifestyle, but rather is offered as an observation of one of the characteristics of trading success. For Ramsey, however, I suspect such commitment is not a burden, as trading is a passion, not a chore. Chapter 5 Geoffrey Woodruff The Third Way Geoffrey Woodruff knew three things. He wanted to be a trader. He wanted to use a computerized approach. He wanted to do it differently from anyone else. The vast majority of futures traders, called CTAs, use trend-following methodologies. These programs seek to identify trends and to take a position in the direction of the trend until a trade liquidation or reversal signal is received. A smaller number of systematic CTAs will use counter-trend, also called mean reversion, methodologies. As the name implies, these types of systems will seek to take positions opposite to an ongoing trend when system algorithms signal that the trend is overextended. There is a third category of systematic approaches whose signals do not seek to profit from either continuations or reversals of trend. These types of systems are designed to identify patterns that suggest a greater probability for either higher or lower prices over the near term. Woodruff is among the small minority of CTAs who employ such pattern recognition approaches, and he does so using his own unique methodology. He is one of the most successful practitioners of systematic trading of any kind. Woodruff grew up on a working farm near Charlottesville, Virginia. Woodruff's perceptions of work were colored by his childhood experiences. When he was in high school, Woodruff thought it was sad that most people loved Fridays and hated Mondays. I was going to make sure that wasn't me, he says. I really wanted to find a way to make Mondays as exciting as Fridays. Another childhood experience taught Woodruff a lesson about work incentives. One summer, he and his sister were hired by their uncle to harvest grapes in his vineyard. Initially, they worked alongside local workers. Even though they were getting paid by the quantity harvested, Woodruff was amazed that the other employees still worked slowly and wasted time. Spurred by the incentive that was directly linked to the amount of work completed, Woodruff and his sister were earning two to three times as much per hour as the other workers. Upset about the slowness at which the harvesting was progressing, his uncle eventually fired the local workers and hired migrant workers. Woodruff discovered that the migrant laborers worked so diligently and efficiently that they were earning more than twice as much as he and his sister were. Clearly, they understood incentives. Woodruff's high regard for the fairness and efficacy of incentive-based payment is reflected in QIM's highly unusual incentive-only fee structure, 0% management and 30% incentive versus the more typical 1% to 2% management and 20% to 25% incentive. Woodruff attended the University of Virginia, which was only 20 miles from his family's farm. He knew he wanted to be a trader before he graduated from college. Much to his mother's consternation, after graduating in 1991, Woodruff never sought a job and instead continued to apply himself to developing futures trading systems. 
A CTA he formed in partnership with a classmate shortly before his college graduation lasted only a few months. His partner's family had put up the seed money for their venture, which was the reason his partner owned 65% of the CTA. Woodruff was amenable to the minority share, but what he had not counted on was that his partner thought he was Woodruff's boss, an unacceptable arrangement prompting Woodruff's quick departure. Several months later, Woodruff formed another CTA partnership, Blue Ridge Trading. Woodruff was responsible for trading, and his partner, Robert Jordan, ran the business and did the marketing. Woodruff was hardly an immediate success. Trading began in October 1991. For the first three months and the subsequent two full years, Blue Ridge ended up slightly below break-even for the period as a whole. But then in the third year, 1994, Woodruff Systems generated an 80%-plus return for the first six months. Woodruff and Jordan had never bothered to sign a partnership agreement. Up to that point, they had split the firm's small net earnings. With his systems beginning to generate significant profits, Woodruff thought it was time to formalize their business relationship with a written agreement. This decision would probably not have been problematic in itself, but the terms that Woodruff proposed so angered Jordan that he broke off the partnership and filed a lawsuit against Woodruff. Woodruff's relationship with Blue Ridge ended shortly thereafter, and the firm was closed down a few months later. Woodruff then established his own CTA, Woodruff Trading. He began trading in August 1994 with less than $50,000 raised from family members. In the final five months of 1994, Woodruff lost 16%. He then lost an additional 12% in 1995. But this very inauspicious beginning was followed by a spectacular 180% gain in 1996. The performance streak continued into 1997, as Woodruff was up another 64% for the first four months of the year. But in the following five months, Woodruff surrendered more than half his year-to-date profits. At the peak, assets under management had reached only $3 million. After his drawdown from the 1997 high point, losses and withdrawals had reduced assets to only about $1.5 million. Woodruff was frustrated by his inability to raise substantial assets, the 20% drawdown from the 1997 high, and most of all by the fact that running the CTA business in addition to trading left him with no time to pursue his true career passion, predictive modeling. Woodruff decided he might do better seeking a proprietary trading job in New York. He returned the remaining assets to his investors, closed Woodruff Trading, and moved to New York to search for a job. A friend of Woodruff had an uncle who was a highly prominent hedge fund manager. On her own volition, she arranged for Woodruff to interview with the president of the firm. Woodruff vividly recalls this interview, which took place in what he described as an amazing space. Woodruff spent about five minutes telling his story and explaining what he did. The firm's president then spent ten minutes telling Woodruff that they had already tried every possible combination of what he was talking about, and it didn't work. He informed Woodruff that they didn't have a job for him because he was not the type of person they hire. Woodruff laughed when he recalled his interviewer's advice. You are wasting your time. This is a complete dead end for you. You really need to be thinking about jobs outside of finance. I'm so glad we had a chance to meet today and talk this through. A friend of a friend had arranged for Woodruff to interview at Societe Generale in New York. The trader who interviewed him was setting up a desk of proprietary traders and felt that Woodruff's approach would be completely uncorrelated to any of the other traders and therefore a good fit. Woodruff very successfully traded a proprietary account for a Societe Generale from 1998 until March 2000. 
He found that not having to deal with the business side was a great advantage and that it allowed him the time to continue his research. It was during his time at Societe Generale that Woodruff first applied and began using his systematic style of trading for a long-short equity account, which was the precursor to QIM's equity program. Woodruff left Societe Generale because his boss, Jonathan, was leaving to start a multi-manager hedge fund operation and had invited Woodruff to join him. Jonathan had told Woodruff that three other portfolio managers would be a part of the group. One of these managers had worked for George Soros and Paul Tudor Jones and was a familiar name to Woodruff. Woodruff was excited about being part of an elite trading group. In preparation for the new venture, several months earlier, Woodruff had asked Michael Geismar, a former roommate who had also worked for him at Blue Ridge, to come to New York to work as his right-hand man. Geismar prepared a trading operation. Shortly after Woodruff left Societe Generale, Woodruff began trading a proprietary equity account using his system while waiting for the hedge fund operation to launch. Woodruff attended a meeting to discuss setting up the new multi-manager fund and was surprised that he was the only one to show up besides Jonathan. When he told Geismar about the meeting, Geismar said, You've got to meet these other managers. At the next meeting, Woodruff again found that he was the only other manager there. Jonathan, where is everyone else? he asked. Jonathan replied, Well, I have been working really hard to get everyone, but I'm afraid that it is just you and me, buddy. Woodruff, who had anticipated this possibility, answered, I'm sorry, Jonathan, it's just you. Woodruff had gotten off to an extremely good start with his proprietary equity account, and after the hedge fund plan fell through, his intention was just to continue trading this account and live off the profits. Since Woodruff had started the account with only $300,000, and he also had to pay Geismar's salary, I was rather incredulous when he told me this. You weren't planning to start a new CTA and manage client money? You were planning to just live off the profits? Oh, absolutely, he answered. His reply and his actions at the time reflected the degree of confidence he had in his system. And although it sounded like a preposterous plan to me, his confidence was not misplaced. Aided by a highly volatile equity market that was particularly favorable for his approach, in return terms, his account compounded twentyfold in the first twenty-five months. In April 2001, Woodruff and Geismar moved back to Charlottesville. As his account grew, Woodruff thought it made sense to diversify by starting another proprietary account to trade his system on the futures markets, as he had originally done. In addition, because at the time the equity account traded only on the opening, he felt that only futures would give him sufficient capacity to build a truly scalable management business if he chose to do so. The plan was to trade the futures account for two years, establish a track record and smoothly running operation, and then consider opening the program to outside investors. Woodruff emphasized the word consider because he says that, at the time, he was not at all sure he wanted to undergo the work and complications implicit in shifting from just managing his own money to establishing a money management operation. At the end of 2002, the third co-founder, Grayson Williams, joined the budding firm, and QIM as a company was officially established in May 2003. As it turned out, Woodruff never got to the two-year decision point. In late 2003, a broker recommended QIM to a client, and Woodruff, along with Geismar and Grayson, decided they were ready to manage other people's money. QIM trades a futures program and an equity program, and both have exhibited strong return-slash-risk performance. 
The Futures Trading Program accounts for about 85% of the near $5 billion of assets under management. From the October 2003 start date for the first client account through 2011, the Futures Trading Program achieved an average annual compounded return of 12.5%, with an annualized standard deviation of 10.5% and a strong gain-to-pain ratio, GPR, of 1.43. A proprietary account trading the Futures Program which has a longer track record, inception December 2001, and trades at much greater leverage than the client accounts, has realized an average annual compounded return of 118%, with an annualized standard deviation of 81%, and a GPR of 1.94. Besides the difference in start dates, the higher GPR is a consequence of the absence of performance fee charges on the proprietary account. The track record for QIM's equity program consists of non-overlapping proprietary and client accounts. The proprietary account, which traded between April 2000 and September 2005, had an average annual compounded return of 115%, with a 69% annualized standard deviation and a very high GPR of 2.69. Since its inception in May 2008, the equity program for client accounts had an average annual compounded return of 34%, with an annualized standard deviation of 20% and a very high GPR of 2.38. Woodruff emphasizes that co-founders Michael Geismar and Grayson Williams have been critical to QIM's success. He is also extremely proud of the fact that QIM has had zero turnover in staff since its inception. There are currently 31 employees. I interviewed Woodruff at his firm, QIM, located in Charlottesville, Virginia, a pretty college town. We talked in Woodruff's office which was noteworthy for the amount of books scattered everywhere, with several stacks on the low table between us. Many of these books were still new. Woodruff is clearly a voracious reader. My impression was that he buys any book that catches his interest and leaves it in plain sight so he will eventually get to it. Woodruff is 42, but looks much younger. If I didn't know him in context of being the founder of QIM, I would sooner have guessed that he was in his late 20s than his early 40s. Woodruff had looked forward to our meeting and was extremely disappointed that he had come down with a bad cold a day earlier. He repeatedly apologized for what he considered his foggy thinking and imprecise recollections. God, I wish I weren't sick. I'm not thinking clearly, he said. How did you get interested in developing computerized trading systems? When I was about nine or ten years old, I became interested in odds and probability. I would obsessively roll a pair of dice to see seven win and six and eight duke it out. It just fascinated me to see the results come out over time, to see the randomness, but also the certainty with which seven would always beat six and eight. When I was twelve, I read about computers. It was an article about the new Commodore, a $300 computer, which in today's terms would be several thousand dollars. I convinced my parents to buy the computer for me, but because it was so expensive, they agreed only on the condition that I return it in time for the 30-day money-back guarantee. It was that or no computer at all for me. This Commodore was the type of computer where you saved your files on a cassette tape, which I thought was really neat technology. The thing I wanted to program was rolling dice so I could roll dice faster. It felt a little weird having a computer decide what was random and not seeing the dice, but it was fun writing the program. To get more time on the computer before I had to return it, I even skipped school for a couple of days by pretending to be sick, using the old thermometer near the light bulb trick. How did you teach yourself programming? 
I think there was some sort of manual. Also, it was such a simple program except for the random number generation, which was a function already programmed on the computer. Even though I begged my parents to keep the computer, they sent it back. But I'm really glad I got to do 30 days of programming back then. I think it was a really good thing for my evolving brain to experience. I did very little programming again till college. Were any other childhood experiences influential in your becoming a trading system developer? Absolutely. A year earlier, I had gotten really interested in baseball statistics after my grandfather, who lives in Pennsylvania, took me to see the Philadelphia Phillies, my favorite baseball team. I calculated and recorded full-page statistics on the Phillies from the box scores in the newspaper after every game. This early experience shows how diligent I was with numbers very early on if I became excited about something. Beginning when I was 12, I read Bill James' Baseball Abstract cover to cover each year. He was creating and quantifying new and interesting statistics. I don't remember the details now, but James created statistics that gave you more information and were more predictive. For example, if you had a 21-year-old hit .311, that was more interesting than a 26-year-old with the same batting average. In retrospect, Bill James's style of quantitative analysis was a very important influence in how I eventually ended up thinking about the process of building trading systems to predict the markets. After having been dismissed for several decades, over the past 10 years, Bill James's analytical style has been recognized and deployed by the baseball establishment. What is the connection between what Bill James did for baseball statistics and your approach to trading systems? James was creative in coming up with better measures. For example, the first batter in the rotation, who batted after the worst hitters, would have fewer opportunities for RBIs than the batter in the fourth position. James would do normalizations for those types of disparities. He would find leadoff batters who would have had a lot of RBIs once you adjusted for their batting slot, and who therefore should have been batting third or fourth. I loved the logic of normalizing data. When did you first get involved in the markets? When I was born, my family put money for me in a managed trust. When I was 18, I started checking the prices of the stocks in my trust account in the daily paper. I checked it for a few days, and it bored me because the prices didn't change much from day to day. But I noticed that the option prices moved much more, that is, in percentage terms. At the time, the most liquid options were the OEX, which were options on the S&P 100 index. I talked to my dad into opening an account for me with $2,500. My broker recommended a trade to me in typical broker fashion. It's a layup, he assured me. It lost money, and I never followed another broker's recommendation in my entire life. Boom. Done. One trade. I will never do it again. What was the trade he recommended? I don't even remember if it was a stock or an option. All that I remember is that he was so sure of it, and it didn't work. Then I started looking at how I might be able to predict the direction of the market. What did you trade? I basically traded the OEX options. I only did one stock trade that I can recall. I was away on the day of the October 19, 1987 crash. When I got back the following morning, the market was down even more. I had been watching a tech company that a family friend had recommended, which had run up from $20 to $40. I had wanted to buy it much lower, but never did, because it just kept going up. 
On the morning of the 20th, the price had fallen all the way back into the low teens. I called the 800 number for Schwab at least 50 times to try to place my order, and I kept getting a busy signal. Finally, I got through. I gave my account number to the woman who answered and said, I want to buy 100 shares of CHPS. She said, Okay, account number so-and-so, you are selling 100 shares of CHPS. I excitedly answered back, No, no, buy! She said, You must mean sell, no one is buying. And again I said, No, I want to buy, B-U-Y. She said in a surprised voice, Really? Everyone's selling. I answered, I'm buying. So she placed the order, and it was filled at $14.50, after which it rallied sharply. I think what is significant about that trade is that it shows I was willing to be a contrarian, even at the very beginning. On what basis were you doing your option trades? There, too, I was a contrarian. I used the put-call ratio as my primary indicator. I really liked the logic of it. I also watched the ARMS index. Is there something about your personality that is contrarian? I just can't stand being part of the herd and simply accepting the consensus. I want to evaluate everything on my own. How did you do in your trading? It's funny. I was looking through my old brokerage statements this morning before you came in, and I was surprised to discover that the memory of my first trades had become distorted. I had been under the impression that my first ten option trades all made money. However, what I found out in checking the brokerage statements was that it was actually my first 10 put trades that made money. But I had also been buying calls, and most of those trades lost money. I had conveniently forgotten that it was the long put positions that made money, not all the trades. Of course, we were in a down market at the time, so it wasn't surprising that the long put positions consistently made money. I now feel I need to go back to anyone I ever told that my first ten trades were profitable and set the record straight. Up to that point, on balance, I had still done very well because the put trades had made a lot of money. My starting $2,500 account had more than quadrupled to over $10,000. Then on my 11th put trade, I lost more money than I made on the first ten put trades combined. What happened on the 11th put trade? The market rallied sharply so the puts expired worthless. Since you were a buyer of puts, why would you have lost so much on one trade? Because I kept on increasing my trade size as I made money. So you blew it all on one trade, yeah. Did that trade end your trading at the time? No, I continued to trade, but I didn't do that well. That summer I tried day trading. I got a whole real-time quote set up. My plan was to spend the summer staring at the trading screen. After about the third day of doing that, I realized this isn't me. This just doesn't work for me. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do when you were in college? I wanted to trade. When I was junior in college, I competed in the AT&T Investment Challenge, which was a real-time trading contest for college students. There was a $50 entry fee. I entered under my own name, and I also entered under my roommate's name. I wanted to get my roommate, Will, to enter the contest as well, but he had no interest in trading. So I did a second entry under his name. I traded the two accounts differently to increase my odds of winning. There were ten winning slots, and I came in sixth, but it was on Will's entry. 
The sixth place prize was $3,000. In addition to the cash prizes, the top ten winners also won a week-long trip to the Bahamas for themselves and a companion. I told Will, you have to accept the prize, it's under your name. Was there an official prize ceremony? Oh, yeah. Who went up to get the prize? Will did. The prize check they gave Will was about this big. Woodruff draws a large rectangular shape in the air with his hands. The next morning, we went to the local bank to try to cash it. The check wouldn't fit through the teller window. I don't get it. They gave you an oversized check. It was a mock check, but we didn't realize it because it looked official. We were hungover and we were idiots. It just didn't occur to either one of us that the check was just a prop. We received the real check in the mail later. I felt really guilty that I had played two hands to win the trading contest. On the fifth day, there was a picnic, and I went up to one of the two guys running the event and confessed to him that I had entered twice. Are you kidding me, he said. We wish everyone would enter ten times. We want people to do multiple accounts and try different strategies. You didn't have to enter under your friend's name. Did you have any game plan of how you wanted to get into trading? I quickly figured out that I didn't want to be a broker working for commissions or a money manager working just for management fees. The incentive fee structure appealed to me. I liked the idea of having your pay directly linked to how well you did. Besides knowing your preferred fee structure, did you have any idea of how you planned to trade the markets? I knew there was a very good chance I might not be able to figure out how to beat the markets, but I also knew there were some people who were beating the markets, thanks to your first Market Wizards book and other sources. As soon as I learned about the efficient market hypothesis, I was on a mission to prove it wrong. Right around that time, I took a course in economics. I was horrified by some of the conclusions academics had come to, such as the efficient market hypothesis. I refused to learn the material because I thought a lot of it was wrong. The professor had given multiple-choice tests throughout the course. I pleaded with him to use essay questions instead of multiple-choice questions for the final exam. A week before the exam, he announced that it would be multiple-choice. I was so frustrated that I decided to take the final exam with a box of crayons on my desk, and I made sure to sit up front so everyone could see it. I wrote a note on the exam explaining that I was answering the questions with what I thought were the right answers, but that for those questions where I thought he was looking for a different answer, I would explain why I thought he was wrong and write that answer in a separate column. I also wrote that I would fail the exam if he went straight down the line and didn't pay attention to the alternative answers I provided. He ignored everything I wrote and just went straight down the line. He gave me a failing grade of 51. I don't really care that much about getting a 51. In fact, I'm glad I did, because I know how wrong some of the correct answers were. Did you have any mentors? People ask me all the time if I had any mentors. The truth is that I'm self-taught. I have thought through this so many ways, and there is no other way to put it. But if you ask me what manager I set out to emulate, it's clearly Paul Tudor Jones. It has nothing to do with his trading style, because I learned pretty early on that I had no interest in being a discretionary trader. Right around the time I read Market Wizards, he came to give a talk at Darden, University of Virginia's graduate business school. He wasn't that famous then. Do you remember anything specific about his talk that had an influence? I remember his confidence, his charisma, and that I liked him. But that is about it. I loved the fact that he was a University of Virginia graduate. 
How did you originally develop your trading system? After I graduated from the University of Virginia, I didn't have my own computer, so I used the computers at the engineering school. The computer lab was this huge room with extremely high ceilings. I don't know what it had been used for before. Filled with over 100 computers. I started looking at trend-following models, which was kind of interesting, but I thought there were already lots of successful trend followers out there, and I didn't want to compete with them. I wanted to do something different. Just from our conversations so far, it is clear to me that there was another reason why you wouldn't have pursued a trend-following approach. It would have been totally out of character for you. A trading approach that, by definition, requires staying with the herd would have been exactly opposite your natural instincts. Even if it worked, you would have had trouble following it. That's true. My contrarian nature was opposed to doing what other people were doing. I also believe that if everyone thought trend-following worked, it would start to work less well. I was never going to be a trend-follower. That was clear. Mean reversion was more interesting. But I didn't like mean reversion either. Why didn't you like mean reversion? Because I found something that worked much better, right then, right in that computer lab. Woodruff speaks these words very emphatically, conveying that this was a pivotal moment in his life. What did you find? I had the realization that I could build a whole third class of models that were trend-neutral on average, that is, trading models that were neither trend-following nor counter-trend. I built a couple of these models and did some preliminary tests. I came to the conclusion that there was a lot of edge in this type of approach. Out of my sheer excitement in discovering the style of model, an approach that still remains at the core of what I do today, I couldn't wait to do more extensive testing. To speed things up, I was working on two computers, but then the lab got crowded and I had to give up one. I started thinking, this place is going to empty out sometime tonight. I decided to get all my data prepared so that I could simultaneously use many of the lab's computers that night. I was very excited about the idea. People started to leave, and then I had two computers, then four, and eventually I was jumping between 20 computers running my back tests. Were you testing your system on one market on each computer? That is exactly what I was doing. I was so excited about the results I was getting that I worked all night and continued through the next day. It was going so well that I pulled a second all-nighter. I worked for nearly 40 hours straight, keeping myself awake with the caffeine from drinking a Pepsi every hour. I was still living on the farm at the time. It was dangerous driving home on the second morning. I remember almost falling asleep at the wheel a couple of times. I got home, took about three minutes to tell my father what I had accomplished, and then went to bed. I slept for 24 hours straight. When I woke up, I felt completely refreshed. I remember some time later reading that you can't catch up on your sleep and thinking, not true. What did you do next? I went back to the computer lab and continued cranking, although I didn't pull any more all-nighters. Did you make any further discoveries? I discovered that it was much better to use multiple models than a single best model. Sometime after that week with the two consecutive all-nighters when I had that feeling, whoa, I think I've got it, I told my mom, I know you are really frustrated that I didn't interview for jobs after graduating college and that instead I'm trying to do this trading thing, which I realize you think is crazy, but I want you to know that if I'm successful in what I'm working on right now, I will do very well with it. I don't want you to think that I'm doing this just to make money. The really great thing about what I'm doing now is that if I'm good at applying predictive modeling, I will be able to generalize the same approach into science 
so I won't just be a trader even if I am very successful at it, and the more successful I am at it, the better the chance it will generalize to science. Did you ever apply it to science? I have set up a foundation called the Quantitative Foundation. The long-term plan is to improve statistical prediction methodologies and software. I prefer the term statistical prediction or statistical learning to data mining, which has deservedly earned a negative connotation through its misuse. We haven't done much so far, but we didn't plan on doing anything yet, since we are still in the phase of making money from our edge in these techniques, as opposed to going out and building software for scientists. We want to build the software so that it is not a gift to our competitors. How do you get around the problem that if you supplied the software for scientific applications, other people could use it as a predictive tool in the financial markets, which would presumably reduce the edge you are currently profiting from? It is going to take a number of years to develop the generalized software from the time we fully engage in this endeavor, possibly as long as five years or more. Maybe by that time, QIM will be closed for some reason. If QIM were to go through a long stretch of poor performance and we decided to close it down, it wouldn't invalidate the predictive modeling techniques I have come up with. In some ways, it would actually validate them by showing that it was possible to have an edge for many years, and finally other people caught up and found the same things we did and knocked those inefficiencies out of the market. That would probably be a good time to offer predictive software for more general use. But it is not a question I have to grapple with now because I am nowhere near the goal of having generalized predictive modeling software to provide to scientists in a wide variety of disciplines and domains. We are building a war chest to do that eventually. We started the foundation with 50 million, and there is about 100 million now. So what is your foundation doing now? As a foundation, we still have to give away a specified percentage of money every year. Where does the money go to? So far, the money has been given to schools and local charities. So the main project of the foundation is something that you would focus on in the post-QIM portion of your life. That's the general concept, although there are interesting scenarios in which the predictive modeling project could operate in parallel with QIM. When you first started managing money under Blue Ridge, for the three months in your inception year and the subsequent two full years, you were actually down slightly on balance. Then, in the first six months of the following year, you were up over 80%. That is such a stark contrast in performance that it seems that something significant must have changed in your trading approach during those early years. Was there some major change to your methodology during this period, and if so, what was it? I started out using market-specific models, I ended up realizing that these models were far more vulnerable to breaking down in actual trading because they were more prone to being overfitted to the past data. In 1993, I started to figure out that the more data I used to train the models, the better the performance. I found that using the same models across multiple markets provided a far more robust approach. So the big change that occurred during this period was moving from separate models for each market to common models applied across all markets. The second change that occurred was increased diversification. I started out trading only two markets and then for some time traded only three markets. But as assets under management increased, and I realized it was best to use the same models across all markets, I added substantially more markets to the portfolio. 
the transition to greater diversification also helped improve performance. By 1994, I was trading about 20 markets, and I was no longer using market-specific models. Those changes made a big difference. When you were only trading two or three markets, how did you decide which markets to trade? That was part of the problem. I was cherry-picking the markets that looked best in backtesting. It sounds like you were still making some rookie curve-fitting mistakes at the time. Absolutely, I was still making some very bad data mining errors in those initial years. Was the system you were using at Blue Ridge after you switched to using the same models on all markets an early version of what you ended up doing at QIM? It was similar, but much less sophisticated. Fewer models generated with far less computing power. But it was conceptually similar? Oh, absolutely. It was the same thing. It was just a very early version of it. How did you come up with the idea for systems that seemed to work well and that were neither trend-following nor mean reversion? Woodruff looks for one of the many books stacked throughout his office and, finding it, begins to talk about it. Ironically, it is a book that he has not yet read. Before you go there, I asked you the question about how... Oh, yeah, I was trying to avoid that question. I know. Woodruff laughs. But I'm not supposed to let you do that. Part of your breakthrough was your idea of trying to find common systems that work stably across markets. Another important concept was to trade multiple systems instead of a single system. But neither of those two ideas is unique. Probably the majority of CTAs trade multiple systems, and a substantial percentage of CTAs also use the same systems across different markets. Those two elements are no doubt critical, but they are not by themselves the key. They don't differentiate you from a large segment of CTAs. Whatever your special sauce is would lie in the system concepts you came up with. I wanted to set up a structure that would allow me to try out a huge number of combinations. When I first started out, I could only try out thousands of combinations. But as computing power dramatically increased over the years, I was eventually able to try out trillions of combinations. But it was critical to do that without overfitting the systems to the data. I finally found a way. There are books about the predictive modeling process that specifically caution against burning the data. That is, you have to greatly limit the number of combinations you ever try. And I found that advice markedly stupid because I knew I could find a way to try any number of combinations and not overfit the data. You get new out-of-sample data every day. If you are rigorous about acknowledging what the new data is telling you, you can really get somewhere. It may take a while. If you are trading the system and it is not performing in line with expectations over some reasonable time frame, look for overfit and hindsight errors. If you are expecting a sharp ratio above 1 and you are getting a sharp ratio under 0.3, it means that you have made one or more important hindsight errors or badly misjudged trading costs. I was using the data up to a year before the current date as the training data set, the final year data as the validation data set, and the ongoing real-time data as the test. Effectively, the track record became the test data set. I understand why you would look for a method that was not trend-following, given your aversion to following the herd, but why would you inherently avoid a mean reversion approach? For the same reason I didn't pursue trend-following. Namely, other people were doing the same type of thing. Mean reversion may have been a better fit for me than trend-following, but I wanted my own style. 
I wanted an approach that fit my personality, which is a very important point that I got out of one of your first two Market Wizard books. Mean Reversion partially fit my personality, but because people knew about it, it didn't fully fit my personality. So I looked for other ways to crunch the numbers that would be neither trend-following nor mean reversion. Without giving away trade secrets, what is the essence of that third approach? I was trying different combinations of secondary variables that I generate from the daily price data. Can you give me an example of what you mean by secondary variables? An example would be a volatility measure, which is a data series that is derived from price, but has no direct relationship to price direction. I got the idea for secondary variables from Bill James. What is the connection between what Bill James did with baseball statistics and what you call secondary variables? James was taking the basic data and formulating different types of statistics that were more informative, and I was taking the price data and defining different quantifications derived from that data, that is, secondary variables, that could be combined to provide useful market signals. Are all your secondary variables derived just from daily open, high, low, and close price data? Absolutely. That is all I am using. You don't throw in any other statistics, such as GNP or any other economic variables? If I could, I would. I actually tried that, but I couldn't get it to work. How would generating these secondary variables give you a trading system? I combine different secondary variables into trend-neutral models. What do you mean by a trend-neutral model? They were neither trying to project a continuation of the trend or a reversal of the trend. They were only trying to predict the probable market direction over the next 24 hours. How many models are there in your system? There are over a thousand. Since there are so many, could you give me an example of just one trend-neutral model to provide a better idea of what you mean? I assume giving away just one out of a thousand models wouldn't reveal a meaningful amount of the system. The issue is that the models share common characteristics. It's hard to give you an example without jeopardizing our intellectual property. Is your system discovery process a matter of seeing patterns in the market and then testing whether they worked, or is it a matter of coming up with theoretical hypotheses and then testing them to see if they worked? I know what to grab. He gets up again in search of another book. This time it is one of mine, Stock Market Wizards. He flips through pages and then finds the spot he is looking for. This is really key. I wouldn't spend the time to do this unless it was really important. Woodruff begins reading my interview with David Shaw. He flips through a few excerpts and then reads the following response by Shaw to my question of how he can tell whether a market pattern represents something real as opposed to a chance occurrence. The more variables you have, the greater the number of statistical artifacts that you're likely to find, and the more difficult it would generally be to tell whether a pattern you uncover actually has any predictive value. We take great care to avoid methodological pitfalls associated with overfitting the data. Rather than blindly searching through the data for patterns, an approach whose methodological dangers are widely appreciated within, for example, the natural science and medical research communities, we typically start by formulating a hypothesis based on some sort of structural theory or qualitative understanding of the market, and then test that hypothesis to see whether it is supported by the data. Woodruff speaking emphatically. I don't do that. I read all of that just to get the point that I do what I am not supposed to do, which is a really interesting observation because I am supposed to fail. 
According to almost everyone, you have to approach systematic trading and predictive modeling in general from the framework of here is a valid hypothesis that makes sense within the context of the markets. Instead, I blindly search through the data. It's nice that people want hypotheses that make sense, but I thought that was very limiting. I want to be able to search the rest of the stuff. I want to automate that process. If you set the problem up really well with cross-validation, then overfitting is a problem that can be overcome. I hypothesize that there are patterns that work, and I would rather have the computer test trillions of patterns than just a few hundred that I had thought of. There is one aspect of the process, though, that is manual. The secondary variables that are used to construct price forecasting models have to make sense. For example, it makes sense that price-derived data series such as volatility or price acceleration might provide important information. The list of secondary variables derived from price is the part I built manually. Then I have a framework for combining the secondary variables in all sorts of combinations to see what works. I wanted to hand that work off to the computer, but I knew how important it was to have the hindsight bias and overfit problem figured out. As an aside, I am still trying to reverse engineer some of the models that we have come up with that are so interesting and amazing. What do these patterns say about the psychology of marketplace? Frankly, I'm not sure yet. You are constructing models by selecting combinations of secondary variables formed from a list of hundreds of possible secondary variables. Depending on the specific selection